Section 9 of Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. Compiled by Merle Johnson. Section 9. Tom Chist and the Treasure Box. Part 2. Subchapter 4. Then Tom Chist crept to bed, trembling, shuddering, bathed in sweat, his heart beating like a trip-hammer, and his brain dizzy from that long, terror-inspired race through the soft sand in which he had striven to outstrip he knew not what pursuing horror. For a long, long time he lay awake, trembling, and chattering with nervous chills, and when he did fall asleep it was only to drop into monstrous dreams, in which he once again saw ever enacted, with various grotesque variations, the tragic drama which his waking eyes had beheld the night before. Then came the dawning of the broad wet daylight, and before the rising of the sun, Tom was up and out of doors to find the young day dripping with the rain of overnight. His first act was to climb the nearest sand-hill, and to gaze out toward the offing where the pirate ship had been the day before. It was no longer there. Soon afterward, Matt Abramson came out of the cabin, and he called to Tom to go and get a bite to eat, for it was time for them to be away fishing. All that morning the recollection of the night before hung over Tom Chist like a great cloud of boating trouble. It filled the confined area of the little boat, and spread over the entire wide spaces of sky and sea that surrounded them. Not for a moment was it lifted. Even when he was hauling in his wet and dripping line, with a struggling fish at the end of it, a recurrent memory of what he had seen would suddenly come upon him, and he would groan in spirit at the recollection. He looked at Matt Abramson's leathery face, at his lantern jaws cavernously and stolidly chewing at a tobacco leaf, and it seemed monstrous to him that the old man should be so unconscious of the black cloud that wrapped them all about. When the boat reached the shore again, he leaped scrambling to the beach, and as soon as his dinner was eaten, he hurried away to find the Domini Jones. He ran all the way from Abramson's hut to the parson's house, hardly stopping once, and when he knocked at the door, he was panting and sobbing for breath. The good man was sitting at the back kitchen doorstop, smoking his long pipe of tobacco out into the sunlight, while his wife within was rattling about among the pans and dishes in preparation of their supper, of which a strong porky smell already filled the air. Then Tom Chist told his story, panting, hurrying, tumbling one word over another in his haste, and Parson Jones listened, breaking every now and then into an ejaculation of wonder. The light of his pipe went out, and the bowl turned cold. "'And I don't see why they should have killed the poor black man,' said Tom, as he finished his narrative. "'Why, that is very easy enough to understand,' said the good reverend man. "'Twas a treasure-box they buried.' In his agitation, Mr. Jones had risen from his seat, and was now stumping up and down, puffing at his empty tobacco-pipe as though it were still alight. "'A treasure-box!' cried out Tom. "'Aye, a treasure-box. And that was why they killed the poor black man. He was the only one, d'ye see, besides the two who knew the place where twas hid. And now that they've killed him out of the way, there's nobody but themselves knows. The villains!' "'Tut, tut! Look at that now!' In his excitement, the domine had snapped the stem of his tobacco-pipe in two. "'Why, then,' said Tom, "'if that is so, tis indeed a wicked bloody treasure, and fit to bring a curse upon anybody who finds it.' "'Tis more like to bring a curse upon the soul who buried it,' 
said Parson Jones, and it may be a blessing to him who finds it. But tell me, Tom, do you think you could find the place again where twas hid? I can't tell that, said Tom. Twas all in among the sand humps, do you see, and it was at night into the bargain. Maybe we could find the marks of their feet in the sand, he added. Tis not likely, said the reverend gentleman, for the storm last night would have washed all that away. I could find the place, said Tom, where the boat was drawn up on the beach. Why, then, that's something to start from, Tom, said his friend. If we can find that, then maybe we can find whither they went from there. If I was certain it was a treasure box, cried out Tom, I would rake over every foot of sand betwixt here and Henlopen to find it. "'Twould be like hunting for a pin in a haystack,' said the Reverend Hilary Jones. As Tom walked away home, it seemed as though a ton's weight of gloom had been rolled away from his soul. The next day he and Parson Jones were to go treasure-hunting together. It seemed to Tom as though he could hardly wait for the time to come. End of Subchapter 4 Subchapter 5 the next afternoon Parson Jones and Tom Chist started off together upon the expedition that made Tom's fortune forever. Tom carried a spade over his shoulder, and the reverend gentleman walked along beside him with his cane. As they jogged along up the beach, they talked together about the only thing they could talk about, the treasure-box. "'And how big did you say twas?' quoth the good gentleman. "'About so long,' said Tom Chist, measuring off upon the spade and about so wide, and this deep. "'And what if it should be full of money, Tom?' said the reverend gentleman, swinging his cane around and around in wide circles in the excitement of the thought, as he strode along briskly. "'Suppose it should be full of money. What then?' "'Buy Moses,' said Tom Chist, hurrying to keep up with his friend. "'I'd buy a ship for myself, I would, and I'd trade to Inji and to Chiney in my own boat, I would.' Suppose the chist was all full of money, sir, and suppose we should find it. Would there be enough in it, do you suppose, to buy a ship? To be sure there would be enough, Tom, enough and to spare, and a good big lump over. And if I find it, tis mine to keep, is it, and no mistake? Why, to be sure it would be yours, cried out the parson in a loud voice. To be sure it would be yours. He knew nothing of the law, but the doubt of the question began at once to ferment in his brain, and he strode along in silence for a while. "'Who else would it be but yours if you find it?' he burst out. "'Can you tell me that?' "'If ever I have a ship of my own,' said Tom Chist, "'and if ever I sail to Inji in her, I'll fetch ye back the best chist of tea, sir, that ever was fetched from Cochin Chinny.' Parson Jones burst out laughing. "'Thank ye, Tom,' he said, "'and I'll thank ye again when I get my chist of tea. But tell me, Tom, didst thou ever hear of the farmer girl who counted her chickens before they were hatched? It was thus they talked as they hurried along up the beach together, and so came to a place at last where Tom stopped short and stood looking about him. "'Twas just here,' he said. "'I saw the boat last night. I know twas here, for I mind me of that bit of wreck yonder, and that there was a tall stake drove in the sand just where yon stake stands.' Parson Jones put on his spectacles and went over to the stake toward which Tom pointed. As soon as he had looked at it carefully, he called out, "'Why, Tom, this has been just drove down into the sand. "'Tis a brand-new stake of wood, and the pirates must have set it here themselves as a mark, "'just as they drove the pegs you spoke about down into the sand.' Tom came over and looked at the stake. It was a stout piece of oak nearly two inches thick. It had been shaped with some care— and the top of it had been painted red. 
he shook the stake and tried to move it but it had been driven or planted so deeply into the sand that he could not stir it ay sir he said it must have been set here for a mark for i am sure twas not here yesterday or the day before he stood looking about him to see if there were other signs of the pirates's presence at some little distance there was the corner of something white sticking out of the sand he could see that it was a scrap of paper and pointing to it calling out yonder is a piece of paper sir i wonder if they left that behind them it was a miraculous chance that placed that paper there there was only an inch of it showing and if it had not been for tom's sharp eyes it would certainly have been overlooked and passed by the next windstorm would have covered it up and all that afterward happened never would have occurred look sir he said as he struck the sand from it it hath writing on it let me see it said parson jones he adjusted the spectacles a little more firmly astride of his nose as he took the paper in his hand and began conning it what's all what's all this he said a whole lot of figures and nothing else and then he read aloud mark s s w s by s what do you suppose that means tom i don't know sir said tom but maybe we can understand it better if you read on tis all a great lot of figures said parson jones without a grain of meaning in them so far as i can see unless they be sailing directions and then he began reading again mark s s w by s forty seventy two ninety one one hundred thirty one hundred fifty one one hundred seventy seven two hundred two two hundred thirty two two hundred fifty six two hundred seventy one do you see it must be sailing directions two hundred ninety nine three hundred thirty five three hundred sixty two three hundred eighty six four hundred fifteen four hundred forty six four hundred sixty nine four hundred ninety one five hundred twenty two five hundred forty four five hundred seventy one five hundred ninety eight what a lot of them there be six hundred twenty six six hundred fifty two six hundred seventy six six hundred ninety five seven hundred twenty four eight hundred fifty one eight hundred seventy six nine hundred five nine hundred forty nine hundred sixty seven peg s e by e two hundred sixty nine foot peg s s w by s four hundred twenty seven foot peg dig to the west of this six foot what's that about a peg exclaimed tom what's that about a peg and then there's something about digging too it was as though a sudden light began shining into his brain he felt himself growing quickly very excited read that over again sir he cried why sir you remember i told you they drove a peg into the sand and don't they say to dig close to it read it over again sir read it over again peg said the good gentleman to be sure it was about a peg let's look again yes here it is peg s e by e two hundred sixty nine foot ay cried out tom chist again in great excitement don't you remember what i told you sir two hundred sixty nine foot sure that must be what i saw measuring with the line parson jones had now caught the flame of excitement that was blazing up so strongly in tom's breast he felt as though some wonderful thing was about to happen to them to be sure to be sure he called out in a great big voice and then they measured out four hundred twenty seven foot south southwest by south and they then drove another peg and then they buried the box six foot to the west of it why tom chist if we've read this aright thy fortune is made tom chist stood staring straight at the old gentleman's excited face 
and seeing nothing but it in all the bright infinity of sunshine. Were they, indeed, about to find the treasure-chest? He felt the sun very hot upon his shoulders, and he heard the harsh, insistent jarring of a tern that hovered and circled with forked tail and sharp white wings in the sunlight just above their heads. But all the time he stood staring into the good old gentleman's face. It was Parson Jones who first spoke. "'But what do all these figures mean?' And Tom observed how the paper shook and rustled in the tremor of excitement that shook his hand. He raised the paper to the focus of his spectacles, and began to read again. "'Mark, forty, seventy-two, ninety-one. "'Mark!' cried out Tom, almost screaming. "'Why, that must mean the stake yonder! That must be the mark!' And he pointed to the oaken stick with its red tip, blazing against the white shimmer of sand behind it. "'And the forty, and seventy-two, and ninety-one,' cried the old gentleman, in a voice equally shrill. "'Why, that must mean the number of steps the pirate was counting when you heard him.' "'To be sure that's what they mean,' cried Tom Chist. "'That is it, and it can be nothing else. Oh, come, sir, come, sir, let us make haste and find it.' "'Stay, stay,' said the good gentleman, holding up his hand. And again Tom Chist noticed how it trembled and shook. His voice was steady enough, though very hoarse, but his hand shook and trembled as though with a palsy. "'Stay, stay. First of all, we must follow these measurements. And tis a marvellous thing,' he croaked after a little pause, "'how this paper ever came to be here.' "'Maybe it was blown here by the storm,' suggested Tom Chist. "'Like enough, like enough,' said Parson Jones. "'Like enough, after the wretches had buried the chest and killed the poor black man, they were so buffeted and bowsed about by the storm that it was shook out of the man's pocket and thus blew away from him without his knowing aught of it.' "'But let us find the box!' cried out Tom Chist, flaming with his excitement. "'Aye, aye,' said the good man. "'Only stay a little, my boy, until we make sure what we're about. "'I've got my pocket compass here, "'but we must have something to measure off the feet when we have found the peg. "'You run across to Tom Brooks's house "'and fetch that measuring rod he used to lay out his new buyer. "'While you're gone, I'll pace off the distance "'marked on the paper with my pocket compass here.'" End of Subchapter 5 Subchapter 6 Tom Chist was gone for almost an hour though he ran nearly all the way and back, upborne as on the wings of the wind. When he returned, panting, Parson Jones was nowhere to be seen. But Tom saw his footsteps leading away inland, and he followed the scuffling marks in the smooth surface across the sand-humps and down into the hollows, and by and by found the good gentleman in a spot he at once knew as soon as he laid his eyes upon it. It was the open space where the pirates had driven their first peg, and where Tom Chist had afterward seen them kill the poor black man. Tom Chist gazed around as though expecting to see some sign of the tragedy, but the space was as smooth and as undisturbed as a floor, excepting where, midway across it, Parson Jones, who was now stooping over something on the ground, had trampled it all around about. When Tom Chist saw him, he was still bending over, scraping away from something he had found. It was the first peg. Inside of half an hour they had found the second and third pegs, and Tom Chist stripped off his coat, and began digging like mad down into the sand, Parson Jones standing over him watching him. The sun was sloping well toward the west, when the blade of Tom Chist's spade struck upon something hard. If it had been his own heart that he had hit in the sand, his breast could hardly have thrilled more sharply. It was the treasure-box. Parson Jones himself leaped down into the hole, 
and began scraping away the sand with his hands as though he had gone crazy. At last, with some difficulty, they tugged and hauled the chest up out of the sand to the surface, where it lay covered all over with the grit that clung to it. It was securely locked and fastened with a padlock, and it took a good many blows with the blade of the spade to burst the bolt. Parson Jones himself lifted the lid. Tom Chist leaned forward and gazed down into the open box. He would not have been surprised to have seen it filled full of yellow gold and bright jewels. It was filled half full of books and papers, and half full of canvas bags tied safely and securely around and around with cords of string. Parson Jones lifted out one of the bags, and it jingled as he did so. It was full of money. He cut the string, and with trembling, shaking hands, handed the bag to Tom, who, in an ecstasy of wonder and dizzy with delight, poured out with swimming sight upon the coat spread on the ground, a cataract of shining silver money that rang and twinkled and jingled as it fell in a shining heap upon the coarse cloth. Parson Jones held up both hands into the air, and Tom stared at what he saw, wondering whether it was all so, and whether he was really awake. It seemed to him as though he was in a dream. There were two and twenty bags in all in the chest, ten of them full of silver money, eight of them full of gold money, three of them full of gold dust, and one small bag with jewels, wrapped up in wad cotton and paper. "'Tis enough,' cried out Parson Jones, "'to make us both rich men as long as we live.' The burning summer sun, though sloping in the sky, beat down upon them as hot as fire, but neither of them noticed it. Neither did they notice hunger or thirst nor fatigue, but sat there as though in a trance, with the bags of money scattered on the sand around them, a great pile of money heaped upon the coat, and the open chest beside them. It was an hour of sundown before Parson Jones had begun fairly to examine the books and papers in the chest. Of the three books, two were evidently log-books of the pirates who had been lying off the mouth of the Delaware Bay all this time. The other book was written in Spanish, and was evidently the log-book of some captured prize. It was then, sitting there upon the sand, the good old gentleman reading in his high, crackling voice, that they first learned from the bloody records in those two books who it was who had been lying inside the cape all this time, and that it was the famous Captain Kidd. Every now and then the reverend gentleman would stop to explain, Oh, the bloody wretch! or, Oh, the desperate, cruel villains! and then would go on reading again a scrap here and a scrap there. And all the while Tom Chiss sat and listened, every now and then reaching out furtively and touching the heap of money still lying upon the coat. One might be inclined to wonder why Captain Kidd had kept those bloody records. He had probably laid them away because they so incriminated many of the great people of the colony of New York, that with the books in evidence it would have been impossible to bring the pirate to justice without dragging a dozen or more fine gentlemen into the dock along with him. If he could have kept them in his own possession, they would doubtless have been a great weapon of defense to protect him from the gallows. Indeed, when Captain Kidd was finally brought to conviction and hung, he was not accused of his piracies, but of striking a mutinous seaman upon the head with a bucket and accidentally killing him. The authorities did not dare try him for piracy. He was really hung because he was a pirate, and we know that it was the log-books that Tom Chist brought to New York that did the business for him. He was accused and convicted of manslaughter for killing of his own ship carpenter with a bucket. So Parson Jones, sitting there in the slanting light, read through these terrible records of piracy, and Tom, with the pile of gold and silver money beside him, sat and listened to him. 
What a spectacle, if any one had come upon them! But they were alone, with the vast arc of sky empty above them, and the wide white stretch of sand a desert around them. The sun sank lower and lower, until there was only time to glance through the other papers in the chest. They were nearly all goldsmiths' bills of exchange, drawn in favor of certain of the most prominent merchants of New York. Parson Jones, as he read over the names, knew of nearly all the gentlemen by hearsay. Aye, here was this gentleman. He thought that name would be among them. What? Here is Mr. So-and-so. Well, if all they say is true, the villain has robbed one of his own best friends. I wonder, he said, why the wretch should have hidden these papers so carefully away with the other treasures, for they could do him no good. Then, answering his own question, like enough, because these will give him a hold over the gentleman to whom they are drawn, so that he can make a good bargain for his own neck before he gives the bills back to their owners. I tell you what it is, Tom, he continued, it is you yourself shall go to New York and bargain for the return of these papers. T'will be as good as another fortune to you. The majority of the bills were drawn in favor of one Richard Chillingsworth, Esquire, and he is, said Parson Jones, one of the richest men in the province of New York. You shall go to him with the news of what we have found. When shall I go? said Tom Chist. You shall go upon the very first boat we can catch, said the parson. He had turned, still holding the bills in his hand, and was now fingering over the pile of money that yet lay tumbled about upon the coat. I wonder, Tom, said he, if you could spare me a score or so of these doubloons. You shall have fifty score if you choose, said Tom bursting with gratitude and with generosity in his newly found treasure. "'You are as fine a lad as ever I saw, Tom,' said the parson, "'and I'll thank you to the last day of my life.' Tom scooped up a double handful of silver money. "'Take it, sir,' he said, "'and you may have as much more as you want of it.' He poured it into the dish that the good man made of his hands, and the parson made a motion as though to empty it into his pocket. Then he stopped, as though a sudden doubt had occurred to him. I don't know that tis fit for me to take this pirate money, after all, he said. But you are welcome to it, said Tom. Still the parson hesitated. Nay, he burst out, I'll not take it, tis blood money. And as he spoke he chucked the whole double handful into the now empty chest, then arose and dusted the sand from his breeches. Then, with a great deal of bustling energy, he helped to tie the bags again and put them all back into the chest. They reburied the chest in the place whence they had taken it, and then the parson folded the precious paper of directions, placed it carefully in his wallet, and his wallet in his pocket. Tom, he said for the twentieth time, your fortune has been made this day. And Tom Chist, as he rattled in his breeches pocket the half-dozen doubloons he had kept out of his treasure, felt that what his friend had said was true. As the two went back homeward across the level space of sand, Tom Chist suddenly stopped stock-still and stood looking about him. "'Twas just here,' he said, digging his heel down into the sand, "'that they killed the poor black man.' "'And here he lies buried for all time,' said Parson Jones, and as he spoke he dug his cane down into the sand. Tom Chist shuddered. He would not have been surprised if the ferrule of the cane had struck something soft beneath that level surface. But it did not, nor was any sign of that tragedy ever seen again." For, whether the pirates had carried away what they had done and buried it elsewhere, or whether the storm in blowing the sand had completely leveled off and hidden all sign of that tragedy where it was enacted, certain it is that it never came to sight again, at least so far as Tom Chist and the Reverend Hilary Jones ever knew. 
End of Subchapter 6 Subchapter 7 This is the story of the treasure box. All that remains now is to conclude the story of Tom Chist, and to tell of what came of him in the end. He did not go back again to live with old Matt Abramson. Parson Jones had now taken charge of him and his fortunes, and Tom did not have to go back to the fisherman's hut. Old Abramson talked a great deal about it, and would come in his cups and harangue good Parson Jones, making a vast protestation of what he would do to Tom, if he ever caught him, for running away. But Tom on all these occasions kept carefully out of his way, and nothing came of the old man's threatenings. Tom used to go over to see his foster mother now and then, but always when the old man was from home, and Molly Abramson used to warn him to keep out of her father's way. "'He's in as vile a humor as ever I see, Tom,' she said. "'He sits sulking all day long, and tis my belief he'd kill ye if he caught ye.' Of course Tom said nothing, even to her, about the treasure, and he and the reverend gentleman kept the knowledge thereof to themselves. About three weeks later, Parson Jones managed to get him shipped aboard of a vessel bound for New York town, and a few days later Tom Chist landed at that place. He had never been in such a town before, and he could not sufficiently wonder and marvel at the number of brick houses, at the multitude of people coming and going along the fine hard earthen sidewalk, at the shops and the stores where goods hung in the windows, and most of all the fortifications and the battery at the point, at the rows of threatening cannon, and at the scarlet-coated sentries pacing up and down the ramparts. All this was very wonderful, and so were the clustered boats riding at anchor in the harbor. It was like a new world. So different was it from the sand-hills and the sedgy levels of Henlopen. Tom Chist took up his lodgings at a coffee-house near to the town hall, and thence he sent by the postboy a letter written by Parson Jones to Master Chillingsworth. In a little while the boy returned with a message, asking Tom to come up to Mr. Chillingsworth's house that afternoon at two o'clock. Tom went thither with a great deal of trepidation, and his heart fell away altogether when he found it a fine grand brick house, three stories high, and with wrought iron letters across the front. The counting-house was in the same building, but Tom, because of Mr. Jones's letter, was conducted directly into the parlor, where the great rich man was awaiting his coming. He was sitting in a leather-covered armchair, smoking a pipe of tobacco, and with a bottle of fine old Madeira close to his elbow. Tom had not had a chance to buy a new suit of clothes yet, and so he cut no very fine figure in the rough dress he had brought with him from Henlopen. Nor did Mr. Chillingsworth seem to think very highly of his appearance, for he sat looking sideways at Tom as he smoked. "'Well, my lad,' he said, "'and what is this great thing you have to tell me that is so mightily wonderful?' I got what's his name, Mr. Jones's letter, and now I'm ready to hear what you have to say. But if he thought but little of his visitor's appearance at first, he soon changed his sentiments toward him, for Tom had not spoken twenty words when Mr. Chillingsworth's whole aspect changed. He straightened himself up in his seat, laid aside his pipe, pushed away his glass of Madeira, and bade Tom take a chair. He listened without a word as Tom Chist told of the buried treasure, of how he had seen the poor negro murdered, and of how he and Parson Jones had recovered the chest again. Only once did Mr. Chillingsworth interrupt the narrative. "'And to think,' he cried, "'that the villain this very day walks about New York town as though he were an honest man, ruffling it with the best of us. But if we can only get hold of these log-books you speak of, go on, tell me more of this.' When Tom Chist's narrative was ended, 
Mr. Chillingsworth's bearing was as different as daylight is from dark. He asked a thousand questions, all in the most polite and gracious tone imaginable, and not only urged a glass of his fine old Madeira upon Tom, but asked him to stay to supper. There was nobody to be there, he said, but his wife and daughter. Tom, all in a panic at the very thought of the two ladies, sturdily refused to stay even for the dish of tea Mr. Chillingsworth offered him. He did not know that he was destined to stay there as long as he should live. "'And now,' said Mr. Chillingsworth, "'tell me about yourself.' "'I have nothing to tell, Your Honor,' said Tom, "'except that I was washed up out of the sea.' "'Washed up out of the sea?' exclaimed Mr. Chillingsworth. "'Why, how was that? Come, begin at the beginning, and tell me all.' Thereupon Tom Chist did as he was bidden, beginning at the very beginning and telling everything just as Molly Abramson had often told it to him. As he continued, Mr. Chillingsworth's interest changed into an appearance of stronger and stronger excitement. Suddenly he jumped up out of his chair and began to walk up and down the room. "'Stop! Stop!' he cried out at last, in the midst of something Tom was saying. "'Stop! Stop! Tell me! Do you know the name of the vessel that was wrecked, and from which you were washed ashore?' "'I've heard it said,' said Tom Chist. "'Twas the Bristol Merchant.' "'I knew it! I knew it!' exclaimed the great man in a loud voice, flinging his hands up into the air. "'I felt it was so the moment you began the story. But tell me this. Was there nothing found with you with a mark or a name upon it?' "'There was a kerchief,' said Tom, marked with a T and a C. "'Theodosia Chillingsworth!' cried out the merchant. "'I knew it! I knew it! Heavens!' to think of anything so wonderful happening as this. Boy, boy, dost thou know who thou art? Thou art my own brother's son. His name was Oliver Chillingsworth, and he was my partner in business, and thou art his son. Then he ran out into the entryway, shouting and calling for his wife and daughter to come. So Tom Chist, or Thomas Chillingsworth, as he now was to be called, did stay to supper after all. This is the story, and I hope you may like it. For Tom Chist became rich and great, as was to be supposed, and he married his pretty cousin Theodosia, who had been named for his own mother, drowned in the Bristol Merchant. He did not forget his friends, but had Parson Jones brought to New York to live. As to Molly and Matt Abramson, they both enjoyed a pension of ten pounds a year for as long as they lived, for now that all was well with him, Tom bore no grudge against the old fisherman for all the drubbings he had suffered. The treasure chest was brought on to New York, and if Tom Chist did not get all the money there was in it, as Parson Jones had opined he would, he got at least a good big lump of it. And it is my belief that those log-books did more to get Captain Kidd arrested in Boston Town and hanged in London than anything else that was brought up against him. End of Subchapter 7 End of Section 9